I'm wary of using the word fascist, but because of that history, we should be very careful about unintentionally reimposing the idea of the lecture as a means by which people are cowed by experts. And TED Talks is all about being cowed by charming experts who have ideas that we're supposed to listen to. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I do a deep dive on the topic of education in the 21st century, or more specifically the idea of pedagogy, of teaching and learning amid the wash of useful but often contradictory information that's available these days. In a way, I wanted to explore the idea of how to best curate one's own self-education. In a sense, this is a meta-discussion, since I often use podcasts to deepen my own knowledge on certain topics, and this podcast is itself a way of responding to and further exploring the issues and personalities that fascinate me. Now, my very first episode of this podcast, you might recall, was a conversation with Tim Ferriss about how to best create podcasts. This episode might, in a sense, be about how to best use podcasts and other digital resources to help educate ourselves in an active and dynamic way, one that goes beyond the influence of marketers' algorithms and prescribed political prejudices that tend to limit rather than expand the ways we look at the world. My guest for this episode is Al Philreis, an English professor who runs the Kelly Writers House at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, where I served as writer-in-residence for one academic year back in 2011 and 2012. While I was there, I was intrigued by Al's conviction that lecture-based teaching, that is, most of the teaching I was exposed to growing up, has become obsolete in the age of information. We dig into that notion in this interview, and Al is not afraid to be provocative in his critique of traditional teaching styles. We talk about the idea that teachers should be curators and how algorithm-based curation platforms at places like YouTube are often antithetical to true education. We talk about the importance of challenging bad ideas within the university and the role of professors in public life. We talk about the role of awkward silence in enabling the best discussions. And we start by unpacking the very word pedagogy. Let's listen in. I'm afraid to use the word pedagogy because I, I don't want to send my, my my listeners to sleep. It's not a not a oh, common no, parlance I like word. Pedagogy. Maybe we can win. We can make the argument for pedagogy as a life changing yeah. uh, force. Do you know why pedagogy is a good word, Rolf? It's because if we say education, you're already putting people to sleep because they're imagining some kind of institution, and or actually the brick and mortar classroom they may be imagining. Right? If you attach higher education, which was an aspirant phrase at some point, then it simply means college or community college or university. If you say pedagogy, or if you say learning, it sort of leaves teaching out. If you say teaching, it kind of leaves learning out. So if you say pedagogy, it's really an idea about how we learn. So it's kind of a big word, but it's a great word. And the problem is it's had a bad reputation because it's related to the word pedagogue, which is typically a person who does a lot of lecturing and is pedantic. So, but I don't think pedag pedagogy is really an idea about how we learn. Democracy has implicitly about it a pedagogy, which is to say, how do we inculcate young people who don't have the right to vote yet, what it means to get yourself into a position where... Um, where you get to participate. So the best pedagogy aims for participation. Unfortunately, most teaching doesn't do that. And that's something that I really 
maybe sense, but it didn't click until I had some conversations with you many years ago. The idea that the lecture is this old technology from a different part of history. Uh, and so maybe walk us through a little bit about why it's an old technology, how it was invented as a pedagogical form, yeah. uh, and how we can do better. Well, I mean, the the fun and easy-ish narratives, fun story is something like this. At first, the thing that we study, let us say a text, was something not widely shared. So people would travel distances to sit around that object of study with a master, with someone who was uh, experienced. And that was implicitly what we now call a seminar, right? So you travel to Paris or you travel to London or you travel to Constantinople and you sit around. I even think of, I was in Iceland last year and that's a very literate country. And going back a thousand years, that often they would have the sagas in a town and they would sit together in a room and one person would read them. And it was this, I don't know if seminar is the right uh, word for it, but it was this community activity where reading yeah. was not yeah. something with your eyes on a page. Yeah. But yeah. it was almost as if they were assembling for an episode of Game of Thrones where they would <laughs> sit down and somebody would read the sagas. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And, and, and you know, this is very – we're making giant generalizations here about the history of it. But roughly speaking, you – as the centuries pass and the mechanisms, the technologies for reproduction become robust, printing press and so forth, lots of copies of these texts get disseminated. And then there's the – so you get the first flipping of the classroom at that moment, whenever it is in the late Middle Ages or something. Which means – the fl well, flipping the class now means a professor who's always lectured says to the students, you know, I've canned my lecture. That is to say, I've put my lecture in a video or an audio and you can listen to it at home and then come to class and we'll talk about it. That's the current flipping. Unfortunately, not that many people do it, but that's the current flipping. The original flip was the opposite. It was to go from the participatory seminar sitting around in Paris You've come from the provinces to study with me. I know this text. We're going to work on it together. And maybe we'll rewrite it or maybe we'll translate it or maybe we'll uh, provide exegesis for it. Maybe we'll annotate it. Maybe we'll illustrate it. Maybe we'll perform it. Maybe it'll influence the play you're going to write or the tract. Uh, we went from that to... Uh, to the dissemination of the text so that people, lots of people had them. And the idea of mastering the text meant you have your copy and I can tell you about it. So suddenly the lecture as an educational uh, device became possible. Uh, and I think, and, and that was a long time ago, and I think we're still in, unfortunately, we're still in that mode. So when we talked five years ago, and I referred to it as a 19th century technology, I actually mean it's sort of a 17th century technology or even a 16th century technology that reached its peak in the 19th century when universities became places where we built tiered stadiums for people to sit in risers and listen and watch a master speak. So the, so the divide, the alienation of the learner from the teacher 
uh, became part of an awful disempowering ratio. So you have the, the I who speaks and the I who listens. You have I know you don't. Uh, I am you aren't yet. Um, I, um, I stand you sit. Right? And that kind of pedagogy automatically, it, it doesn't tend just to silence the person who's receiving. It creates the attitude of receiving, which is leaning back, taking notes, restating what's being said. Uh, and if you raise your hand and let the record show I'm raising my hand, if you raise your hand, it could well be by the most benign, brilliant lecturer uh, that the statement, well, we'll get, can, we'll get to questions later, right, which completely disables the potential for critique or just genuine question asking. It disables it so that it becomes a kind of rush at the end, you know. So that's, that's, the, that's, the, the, that's the educational mode we're still mostly in, even in high schools, uh, even though since the 90s, since the middle of the 90s, we've had the technological means to flip the classroom back again so that you can say, you know, you guys have prepared this thing at home. I, you saw my canned lecture. You saw what I have to say about the last of the czars in a history class. Or you saw what I have to say about Act Two of King Lear. And, you, and you've done all your homework. Here we are in a valuable, expensive hour and 20 minutes or 50 minutes, and we're going to devote it to your questions and concerns. And that's called discussion. The point here, Rolf, is that the universities haven't done it, even though they're set up for the kind of, and I don't mean this negatively or positively, I'm just using it neutrally at the moment, the consumerist idea that a tuition-paying student has a right to be able to say, a right, to be able to say, I didn't get what you said 20 minutes ago. Can we go back to that? I don't understand. What, maybe it's the way you're saying it. Maybe it's the way I learn. You know, It's hard enough to do it at, in institutions that are set up to have students be able to expect mutuality. Now you go outside the university into that democracy I was talking about earlier and now there really are no structures set up for citizens to talk back to on high, po behind podium speakers, uh, people we've elected or people who are leading us or... There aren't, you say? There aren't the mechanisms mm -hmm. as part of the pedagogy of the polis because we're so used to someone, even the greats, even the greats, even the greats like Martin Luther King Jr., who were raised in a um, call and response mode, even there, the great things we remember uh, King for, the clips, right? The YouTube clips, they're all King being incredibly articulate. Uh, they're all in a, it, we, it's the TED Talksization of learning. TED Talks Meaning are one, awful. One, one way. Meaning one way, one person with a microphone speaking. Yes. Okay. So and you TED will Talks. learn. TED Talks is evil. Okay. Explain. It's the it's the it's it's the fetishization of a really good lecture. Only a really good lecture, like uh, 
you know, like Doc Redding, who taught me Russian history back in college, long, long may he live. Um, you know, there was no way to get a word in edgewise, but it was wandering, it was brilliant, it was full of anecdotes, it took about an hour and 20 minutes and he wasn't done yet, so you stayed later. The TED Talk is, you know, quote unquote, the best of. It's just an ad for an idea and usually a dull idea that's gussied up. Um, TED Talks are essentially in pedagogical terms, far right wing. And, and, in and yet sense? people think it's cool. In what sense? Okay. So are, is it okay if we take a digression now on this? Well, this is Deviate with Rolf Potts. So devi deviation oh, uh, and digression are part of the rules. I totally I like this podcast. <laughs> There's Deviate. some things I want to get back to. Um, okay. But I promise you this digression will be relevant. Okay. All okay. Right. All right. So you said, did I say the word fascist? No. No, I said right wing. Yes. Okay. I want to push the F word just a little bit. I don't want to accuse anyone who's, in, who's into TED Talks or, you know, the moth type performances that spin off and away from that, you know, someone on a stage being brilliant and creative and cool, because we associate most of those people with liberal, uh, inclusive, their ideas are progressive often, right? It's very, very un infrequent that you have a TED Talks that's actually delivering conservative content. So people think, why would Al say fascist? Okay, so here's that digression, All right? So one of the problems, one of the many, many problems with the Third Reich was that it was, an, I know you don't, I speak, you listen, I stand, you sit. Uh, an entire generation of people who were uncomfortable with the herky-jerkiness of nascent democracy, right? And of sort of impure forms of capitalism and everything that was, everything that was problematic with post-World War I German culture. Um, people seize the idea that it's time for someone to tell us who we are and tell us what's so great about us. Make Germany great again. Um, and people listened. Lots of people listened. Not as many as we think because it was a small percentage of people at first. But the point is that the reproduction of national socialist ideology was ready by 1939, 40, 41, and at the time of the Wannsee Conference in 42, where it was decided that Jews will be exterminated along with gypsies and homosexuals and so forth, communists. Um, at that point, a whole generation of people had gone through school who were inculcated not simply in uh, national socialist content, blood and soil content, but actually a pedagogy. And the pedagogy was, you are a better person if you just listen to authority and salute authority. So there are ironies when you have liberal teacher idea people, Steven Spielberg, for instance, who's a liberal and a good person, I think. Um, when he creates art that basically tells you how to feel and tells you how to think, right? Um, or universities which are teaching you liberation, they're teaching you the history of civil rights, but they're teaching it to you as you sit not, mutely in, a, in seats while someone who's an expert tells you what to think about striving for individual rights, striving for self-expression, uh, striving for the First Amendment. Uh, the irony there is bitter, and so I, I'm wary of using the word fascist, but because of that history, um, we 
should be very careful about unintentionally reimposing the idea of the lecture as a means by which people are cowed by experts. And TED Talks is all about being cowed by charming experts who have ideas that we're supposed to listen to. So that's my digression, but the, I guess the point here is that, I mean, I teach a course on the Holocaust. That's where this is coming from. And, and I must Schind teach that course. Schindler's List in that? Yes, okay. as a negative example. Okay. Right. I teach that course thinking that if I simply tell them what I know, and that's an awful lot after 34 years of teaching it, right? If I teach the students what I know, it's an irony because really what we're trying to do is create an environment where people are able on their own, individually with their own, their own learning styles, to figure out what's wrong with a civic pedagogy that's about listening to authority. Do you show Triumph of the Will, for example? I don't, but that's a per perfect example. I mean, Schindler's List is a, is a sneakier example because it's a well-meaning film. It's a beautiful film. But I can't stand Schindler's List because it focalizes the Jews and everybody else through the eyes of one person who historically was a very confusing but good person, but it, that person, Oscar Schindler, in the film sees everything on high. In the middle of that film, there's a little girl. Her name actually in real life was Jenya, and Jenya was in the middle of the Octeon, in the middle of this crazy, uh, uh, in Krakow, this crazy roundup of Jews. We, the viewers of this epic film, we discern, we see, we pick out with our eyes little Jenya. And do you remember, Ralph? The pink dress. Yeah, she's wearing re a red coat. Okay. Yeah. It's a black and white film, Ralph. Who put the collar on Jenya? Steven Spielberg did. And Schindler is standing up above the whole scene, and he can see her. Okay, so I say to my students at that moment, how come you can see Jenya? There's hundreds of people, all of whom are going to be rounded up. Why do you see Jenya? Well, because Spielberg told us we need to look at Jenya. And the key, the anti-fascist pedagogy that I'm interested in is the one that teaches you to see for yourself. If you're going to see Jenya, it's because you see her, that you discern her, you know what to look for. So if there's fascism or anti-democracy on the horizon or bad ideas that you want to challenge at a university uh, and you don't know how to discern one from the other because you've been told all your life that someone will point it out for you, then you're not going to be in a position to see it coming on the horizon in its new forms. It's a disabling education in that case. I'm going. This is going to be a namby-pamby kind of summary statement because I know you want to get to other topics, but if you would just stop, if you're in a classroom and you're a teacher, just stop and wait and really wait. If you wait long enough, you know, Ralph, you've taught. If you wait long enough and you create an environment that's safe enough and open enough, someone will say something and then you have yourself a discussion. I generally find that if I start, I'm doing it now actually, if I start talking, if I give myself five minutes to set something up in class, it'll be 25 minutes before I stop. So I don't do that. What I do in class is I set up questions. I find out what the students think. I make a piece of paper or online version of this and I give their own questions back to them and I say at the beginning of class, okay, what should we talk about? 
So I'm curious about two things, one of which is how pedagogy might change in the academy, in institutions like Penn, and then maybe even more applicable to my listeners, most of whom probably aren't in educational institutions, how self-learning in the polis might work, how we have this deluge of information, much of it uncurated. I know that you co-founded Penn Sound, which has a lot of recordings of poets um, reading their work, uh, and that is in keeping with your own discipline. But all sorts of disciplines have content out there. And so that's another thing that I want to touch on. Is sure. How, how, the, how the individual who, is, who now doesn't have to go to the, to the hut to listen to the elder read the Icelandic sagas, there's more than a person could read or watch in their life uh, at their fingertips, how they can organize things. So yeah. maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. For now, I'm curious to know... <clears throat> What the, what would be the Al talk as an alternative to the TED talk? If the TED talk is in a is in a little bit of, a, uh, actually, my dad was a science teacher. He called it garbage in, garbage out. I'm not sure if that's ex an exact parallel. He was a science teacher, um, and he, what did he mean exactly by that? Well, you 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 lecture, and then the students write things down and oh, yes. regurgitate right. it. Right. It's uh, I think in uh, there have been some uh, radical pedagogy theorists. Many of them are very good. Um, and uh, one of them calls that the vending machine concept of education, right? You put in your tuition or you put in your effort and you get out, there is your, almost like a diploma, the equivalent of the candy bar in a particular class. Yeah. Whatever the opposite of that is. So you said if, uh, in the introduction to this episode of your podcast that you met me five years ago and you came and there was something about the writer's house that appealed to you. So let's describe that. What would, I mean, we're in a learning space right now in this studio in the back of the writer's house. So what is it about the writer's house that suggests to you maybe an alternative to the lecture? Well, it was more integrated. One thing that um, came to mind is one of the reasons why I'm late to recording this interview, which is that I had a sandwich after my lecture. So the, the writer's house is not just a place where information is changed. Food. <laughs> right. So there's one thing, right? Yeah, food. Let's serve. Let's let's eat. Right. So um, uh, the other reason you're late is all the Q and A. That's true. I, I uh, for my listeners, I did an event for my book Souvenir and uh, had a nice little chat, and people brought a lot of questions. Which okay, is also... so that's two. Third element: How many people in the room were students, percentage wise? Not sure. Maybe half. Half. So yeah. who were the others? They were, it's hard to say. Some people may be retired of, of retirement age. Some other people may be community members in, from Penn and the greater community. One was a former student of mine from Paris who is finishing his master's degree at Rutgers Camden. So not a Penn person, neighborhood people, uh, staff members at Penn who are taking a lunch break. So 50% would be what we'd call non-traditional members of, if it were a class, they'd be not your typical students. And it, so, I, so that's number, was it, are we up to three? This is the third element of what the writer's house sort of enables these, in, these, in this area of these ideas, which is to say if you create an inter, not simply uh, uh, economically diverse, ethnically diverse, uh, uh, ideologically diverse, we don't get enough of that as, as much as I would like, but... Uh, and uh, generationally diverse, which is what we get here. The, the questions are going to be different. The responses are going to be different. Uh, 
And not only that, Rolf, but at the end when people gather around, or in this case at the beginning, you, you had a sandwich afterwards, but everybody else had a sandwich beforehand. The gathering around the lunch table, picking up the sandwich. So you have a 19-year-old from Santa Barbara who's an undergraduate at Penn whose parents are paying un ungodly amounts of money for the kid, to, this very bright kid to go to school. Is standing next to a retiree who spent 40 years working for the Philadelphia Bulletin and then retired and is now coming to events like this and has a whole set of experiences that are unlike the kid from Santa Barbara, and they're talking. So there's a triangulation that occurs between you, the presenter, the reason for the occasion, and this elder ex-journalist and this kid from the West Coast. And what's happening between, those, between and among those three things is completely unscripted. And if you multiply that by the number of people who, or the number of triads that we can create here, you get, you know, who knows what's going to happen. So that's a really important aspect to this. So, I mean, there are many more. But I guess what I would say in answer to your delicious question, you know, what would be the Al talk? That's the wrong <laughs> What would I like to see as an alternative to TED Talks? Um, how about if the lights were up on the house and people got to talk about the topic? Maybe the great TED Talk would be a kind of John Cageian, you know, the TED Talk guy comes out with his uh, black turtleneck and sitting on a stool and amazing shoes, you know, and turn the house lights off and say, well, I'm supposed to talk about whatever, uh, the state of wellness in the United States, mental wellness. Why don't we find out about you guys? Of course, it wouldn't be five minutes. It wouldn't be slick. It'd be very hard to capture on video. It wouldn't be a TED Talk, but it might be education. Well, that sounds a little bit like a Quaker worship, unprogrammed Quaker worship. I mean, we're in we're in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's a Quaker school, actually. That's true. That's mm -hmm. that's the mascot here is the Quakers, and so um, the Fighting Quaker, the, 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 <laughs> the Fighting Quakers, the, the the no longer pacifist Quakers. Um, yeah, the idea. Actually, there's some parallels. I'm thinking that I was raised in the Lutheran church, which is very liturgical, sort of one sort of broke off from the Catholic church. Liturgy is from maybe pre-literate days where if you hear the same thing, if there are not enough books go, to go around, if you're maybe not literate, um, then if you repeat the same thing every Sunday, then you'll have a good sense for exactly what you believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it almost seems like um, that is the sort of the old lecture style of worship, whereas the, 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 the friends meeting where people just sort of speak what, it, what is ever in their minds or in their, on their hearts. With awkward silence. Lots of awkward silence. Yeah. There's a connection to what I was saying before about the room where I go into the room and I say, here are some questions. Who wants to start? Right? It's so not filmable. It's so not TED Talks. It, but it really, you know, if you're willing to wait, you will get some great stuff. I am convinced that I can teach, put the word in quotes, so-called difficult poetry. Let's say an Emily Dickinson poem that nobody's ever really been able to figure out. I can teach that to seventh graders. Seventh graders whose teacher might describe them as, well, they're a little shy about literature or their poetry. They don't know what to do with it. They're not, it's not going to go well. 
I believe that, and I can go younger than that. I think fifth graders could do it. There are techniques you can use to distribute the assignment of somebody, you know, figuring out what word, what this word or phrase does. You can have a rip-roaring discussion with fifth graders about an Emily Dickinson poem if you would just listen. Just let them start. It'll... It's not Socratic because I don't know where we're going because the poem is open-ended. It's not Socratic. So Socratic, just to quickly define that for listeners. I take Socratic. People say to me, oh, Al, your pedagogy is so groovy, it's Socratic. No. Socratic is the brilliant Socrates leading you to the conclusion that he already knows, but he's trying to get you to be the, uh, the good interlocutor, right? But I don't know where we're going. I really don't. I've taught the Dickinson poem in this example many, many times, but it's wide open. I have no idea. And oftentimes I will say in all sincerity to a group of students, really young or really old, I teach a lot of seniors. Um, I've never heard that before. We together, the 10 of us, the 12 of us, the 25 of us, we just went to a place together collectively that could never have been anticipated because of the combination of minds, experiences, sensibilities, the air in this room. We went, we, we improvised and we got somewhere. So I, this gets us to uh, one of the questions that you didn't ask. It's a topic you brought up, but you didn't ask it, which was about outside the university, how teaching and learning might take place. Right, because that's certainly worth thinking about because we're sitting in this beautiful house on an, an Ivy League institution. Um, and so there are, there's a concrete world and, and, and physical circumstances that can enable the kind of learning that happens here. Uh, but a lot of people might be far flung. They might live in Saline County, Kansas, where I have a house. They might live in Indonesia or some other part of the world. So yeah. I'm very curious about, given your very specific pedagogical um, beliefs and convictions, how this works for people who don't have the Kelly right. Writers' House. I'm ready. All right. I'm totally ready. Let's do it. Uh, 1995 or so, I began to realize this thing called electronic mail was a way to reach people who were outside the university. By the time we get to 1999, we're doing uh, the most primitive form of webcasts, which are interactive webcasts. Very primitive. People can phone in. They telephone in. They can stream. That was a video stream. It was using a real audio, a real video, RV. I remember real, that. Real early. By the time you get to 2012, I'm ready because I've put all of my poetry stuff online. I've been teaching online since 1994, really. Um, get to 2012, and there are some people, I'm thinking of two, two professors at Stanford in particular, who realized that the pipes were wide enough, that the accumulation of recorded video, mostly video recorded, uh, you know, dispensing of knowledge had accumulated enough so that we can make it available, YouTube-like, to anyone. All you need is an excuse to curate those materials, wrap it around with some explanations, curriculum, and call it a massive open online course, unfortunately, MOOC, right? M-O-O-C. So M-O-O-C, capital M-O-O-C, all caps. Now, it got some bad press initially for reasons we can get into, but let's just leave that aside for a second because that's politics. Um, 
there was an ex-MOOC and a C-MOOC. Now, a C-MOOC is a connectivist MOOC, which is meant to be free and open and really unformed. It's a gathering of people worldwide in great numbers who come into the discussion forums who agree on a common set of materials to discuss. That's a CMOOC. An XMOOC is more corporatist. It's more, you know, the universities are deigning to provide to the world the easiest way to learn calculus or uh, C++ programming or how to paint a picture if you don't know how to do it. There are some all kinds of awful predecessors to that. The great courses, for instance, yuck, I'm holding my nose. <laughs> Alice literally holding his nose. I'm literally holding my nose. And that's like a set of CDs or something? Yeah, and then it became online. It's still available. You can pay for it. And it's just talking heads. It's lectures, videos. Okay. But a MOOC potentially was more than Great Course because Great Course is one way. You know, European history in 12 weeks, right? The inheritance of... The Chautauqua movement, in a way, you know, real, real middle brow. Um, you'll, you know, you're, you're, you've been an engineer for 20 years. Everybody thinks you're dull. You should learn about European history. Take a course. So the okay. Chautauqua movement is that 19th century? When, yeah. Uh, 19th basically, century. before television and radio, when yeah. uh, learned people would travel around almost like a burlesque show, but for the mind. <laughs> well, that's and... sort of sort of an unfair history, but you know. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So you know, well, middle yeah. brow, middle brow, you know, raising up the middle middle class uh, aspirants to uh, essentially a university level. But let's just leave that aside. The point is that when the MOOC came out, when the MOOC became technologically possible, there already existed curated courses for profit, talking head videos. But this was different. The MOOC was different because the idea was to put into one single site or platform. Yes, a series of videos, but also a discussion forum, quizzes, you know, to check comprehension, a whole course, basically an online course. And the idea in 2012, some spring, summer 2012, was make this available to anybody free, free non-credit. So I signed up for this because I already had all my materials through Penn Sound, all the audio of the poets, Writer's House, all the video the studio we're sitting in, everything. We could do this. So I took the course I'd been teaching actually online, my modern contemporary American poetry course, the course I'd already been teaching online and had been teaching in the classroom using the pedagogy I've already described, which is ready for the MOOC, when you think about it, all ready to flip outward to the world. It's already there. All my experience teaching the fifth graders and the seniors, a Dickinson poem that requires a collaborative, collective, close reading. And my goal, I grant you it was uh, and still is um, utopian or idealistic at least, was to crowdsource, I mean that in a positive way, interpretive, to use interpretive communities of people who don't know each other but who are gathered worldwide around this poem. It's sort of a mass version of that original late medieval gathering at the Sorbonne or wherever. We take a Dickinson poem and 52,000 people bring to bear on it their thoughts, their ideas, their musings. Okay, that's Modpo, M-O-D-P-O, Modpo, which was the MOOC that I and some others created in 2012 here. Now, most MOOCs have become DOA. They become 
the equivalent of um, I'll point out the girl in the red coat. Uh, they're just talking head lectures, very TED Talk-like. Are there some <clears throat> examples and, of these types of MOOCs? Oh, um, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds are there, of them. Are there brand, the providers brands? Are, well, I'm not sure what you mean, but there's a plat. There are platforms. So Coursera yeah. is a platform. EdX is a platform. Coursera is a for-profit group. EdX is technically non-profit. There are a bunch of others. Udacity. In 2012, they all opened with idealism. Everything's free. Everything's not credit. Currently, most of them are not free. You can get credit. You can get degrees. My MOOC, Modpo, is now entering its seventh year, and it's free and open, non-credit. We have currently 23,000 people enrolled. Every fall, we spend 10 weeks going through the course. 191 countries are represented by the people enrolled in the class. Uh, T. De Los Reyes is uh, in Manila. She's been associated with the course for seven years. She's a volunteer. She's this, she, I, I, is she like a she, teaching assistant? She's like, yeah, she's a, well, she's what we call community TA. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are 50 Ts. There's, 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 a, there's a CTA in every time zone so that when someone is posting a question in the discussion forums in Modpo, there's always someone up who can answer the question. So it is a really cool thing. And Rolf, I mean, this is a great way to, I never lecture. If you look in Modpo, there are hundreds of videos, not, not a single lecture. It's all discussion. And what I've done now, the original videos were recorded here at the writer's house with me and eight, eight young scholars, eight young poet types, undergrads, grad students. And in each case, I led a discussion about a poem which models the kind of discussions that people out there can have. What happened as a result of that, first, was that people in other places created copycat videos of us sitting around the table. So immediately, a group in Edinburgh created a kind of counter-response video. They were opening, opening some fabulous Scottish beers instead of the coffee that we had. And they talked about a poem that was kind of counter to one of the William Carlos Williams poems. And it was a brilliant 16-minute video in which some of them were teachers, one was a poet, but just Modpo people in Edinburgh offered their version of this. So what did I do with that? I put it into the course. Now we have a whole syllabus that consists of videos of people around the world convening themselves to talk about a poem, and then they load it to upload it to YouTube, and we add it to the syllabus. By now, Modpo has a teacher resource center, and it has a CCCR page, which is the Community Collaborative Close Readings page, where people around the world do what we do. So we are building the course together. I mean, that's not bullshit. We were building the course together. It's still free. It's still not credit. It's still not necessarily for Penn, but Penn, Penn's resources are providing it, or at least Writer's House resources. Is it a lot of work for you? Yeah, but less and less because people take our feeling ownership of it all around the world. I'm constantly meeting people who show up at the Kelly Writer's house to the physical space that I thought was the limit of what we could do in experimenting with pedagogy. A few West Philly people, maybe once in a while someone coming from New York or South Jersey, uh, retirees and students mixing. I thought that was the limit. But then the fat pipe version of online teaching, the MOOC, enabled me to realize, well, it's a total of about 180,000 since 2012, have dipped into the resources here and have seen 
that the best way to learn, if you're not at a school, if you're not at a university, is to join the discussion. It's very, it's discussion focused. People say to me all the time, oh, you're doing a MOOC, so obviously you've given up in your lecturing. Because the assumption is that online teaching has to be lecture. But that's the weakest, simplest mode, medium, of online learning, the one-way lecture. But now we have all kinds of really robust platforms for discussion, for synchronous chat, for asynchronous, for, you know, there's now a kind of triple, quadruple split-screen Facebook Live where you can have lots of people talking. Google Hangout is another way to do it. You can do FaceTime multiply. And then you can record it and then plow it back into the course. Couple questions: <clears throat> Are there other? Uh, obviously, Modpo, which is poetry specific, uh, has is is thriving after seven years. Are there engineering equivalents? Are there other MOOCs and other uh, topics that are free, or is a lot of this content uh, under big umbrella corporate structure like Coursera? Well, you know, more and more, they're fee based. Okay. Um, I think the free MOOC, the free X MOOC, remember these are the sort of officially sponsored MOOCs, C MOOCs are out there. You just have to find them. And those are like community-based. Um, most X MOOCs, Rolf, are fee-based. And a lot of them are part of uh, degree programs. I'm kind of against that. I'm not against it. I just, that's not what I'm interested in. There are, there are free, there are free MOOCs. And I think there should be more of them. And I... Someday I hope that the, you know, Coursera, ha you know, I, they have to figure out a way to monetize what they do. They have a lot of salaries and I am using their platform. I mean, I don't begrudge them that. I just, I'm glad that they're willing to let me do it free. But someday we need to find a place, another platform where we can all do this for free because it's really technically not that hard. You just have to have a lot of backup servers and, you know, there's a, if you're te if you're teaching twenty thousand people, people are going to have questions like, when I click on this, it doesn't work. You've got to have someone able to answer that yeah. question, right? So alas, most of them are for fees. Maybe they're modest fees, forty nine bucks. But Modpo is free for a course. Okay, for a course. I mean, I don't know. Uh -huh. I'm not. So, I'm so not interested in charging money that I'm not even aware. I'm being deliberately naive about this. Penn tolerates it and Coursera tolerates it. Modpo is free. If it if it gets to the point where it's not free, I'll probably close it down. I really am interested at this point in my career in meeting people who care about poetry and who couldn't otherwise afford it. I have met so many interesting people around the world. Not too long ago, my wife and I went to Prague to see my daughter who was studying abroad, and I just put the word out to the Modco, Pod, Modpo community that we'd be in Prague and that we'd meet at this particular place, this little art space in the middle of Prague at 6.30 p.m. one night, and we would talk about a Robert Creeley poem, and 40 people showed up. Nice. Who the hell were they? And then we all went out for beers afterwards, and I'm still in touch with three or four of the people who met me there. That's inter interesting that there's, there's all these communities of interest around the world that are being connected through different categories of interest, and I guess education or mass, massive open online courses, the MOOCs are, are another way of bringing people together in this way. I'm curious, one thing that has happened since I was here uh, at Kelly Ryder's house, 
several years ago is that podcasts have blown up. And I think my podcast is a, is an expression of the fact. The fact that I finally decided to do my own podcast is is a symptom of the idea that podcasts are suddenly a way that people are getting information and entertainment in a way that they may not have been doing so 10 years ago. How is Deviate um, available? Is it on iTunes? Yes. And also SoundCloud, maybe? Yeah, it's... It's, yeah. Um, it's everywhere. Yeah, I, I, through, the, through uh, some plugins, I can basically post a blog post every Tuesday, and then it automatically uploads to the different services that people use. Or you can go directly to rolfpotscom slash deviate, find an episode, and use the player that's embedded in the page. So Excellent. Um, yeah, there's different strategies for that, and I'm very new to the technology side of that. I have people who are helping me. What interested me was the, was the conversation side. I'd listened to so many podcasts that it felt like there were friends... I felt like I was listening to friends week after week, and then I wanted to sort of join the conversation. Now, some a lot of people um, listen to podcasts for self-edification, for self-education. And I'm wondering, given that podcasts are just another facet in this wide range of information that is now available, um, how can one, outside of MOOCs, self-curate an education, and is the community aspect essential. And, and this is something that I actually don't know the answer to. I know that in, like in the self-help community, a lot of people almost have a dependency on self-help. They like listening to self-help, but they never actually implement it very much. And so I'm wondering mm -hmm. if there's a lot of people who love the information that they get from podcasts, but haven't brought it to the next level. It's like they're willing, they're willing, um, victims of lecture culture, yeah. you know, that they enjoy the yeah. lectures, but they aren't really engaging the education part. How right. can people take that next step? Okay. This is a really interesting topic. Um, first, let me say something about podcasts as a particular mode, but I want to really talk more generally about curation, which is what you're, what you're really talking about. Podcasts, I can't quite explain it, but po I find podcasts to be extraordinarily intimate. Um, I really like them. I have liked them since about 2007. And I have been um, hosting a podcast. I mean, I host three or four, but the, the one that I really like that I do is called Poem Talk. And we've been doing it since 2007. I love it. And the best pod podcasts, as you point out, are the ones where, oh, these are my friends. I mean, I know that guy's, I know that person's always, uh-oh, there's a hobby horse coming because I know that person. They know each other's quirks and so forth. The best podcasts have a community that's usually from other so, some other social media platform. So, for instance, the one of the early ones, the, uh, the Slate Culture Gab Fest, which is uh, three people I've actually gotten to know one of them quite well. The other two I've met, I've been on that show actually once, to talk about Matpo. Um, they incur constantly encourage a discussion elsewhere. So one of them tweets a lot, and the others are on Facebook. Who are the three people in? So this is uh, this is uh, Dana Stevens uh, and Steve Medcalf, and I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. She's the she's a brilliant editor of of Slate in New York. I'll think of her think of her name. Um, it's not June Thomas, is it? No, June is is uh, associated with that. Okay. Um, so uh, they've been doing this, the three of them, f almost as long. Yeah, I think around the same time, 2007 or 2008. 
so they've created a kind of Q&A talkback community because they've been at it so long. But there's nothing, Ralph, inherent in what we're doing that enables other voices. So that's the difference between podcasting, which is a one-way medium, which encourages people shouting back at the – or you're going for your three-mile jog and you're listening to Rolf and you're saying, Rolf, no, you forgot to ask that question. Uh, but because we're so open, because you'll always answer an email sent to you or some message that's direct message, there is a kind of dialogue. What I'm interested in is is something that takes the next step. So in a way, ModPo is, use, is a robust platform that is using the intimacy of the podcast. It's DIY. That's the intimacy. Do it yourself. Yeah. What you and I are doing right now is unscripted. It's longer than, you know, what's usual. And it's people who know each other talking interestingly about, I think, interestingly about ideas. I'd like to push all that into the realm of receptiveness and responsiveness essentially live time to people who might have questions. So that's somewhere close to the radio talk show, except radio has lost the intimacy that we have here now, and I'm not sure. Like I said, I can't put my finger on exactly what the podcast magic is. I think it's DIY. Okay, curation. You are right. There's so many options for curation simply on your mobile phone. Uh, the most podcast hosting apps allow you to organize things into categories, right? So if you're, in a, if you're obsessed about global warming, there are five really good weekly discussions that you can just listen to every week and educate yourself and keep up to date. So I really like that. The downside of curation is that most of the platforms will curate for you. And in the case of YouTube, it's downright evil because... If you do, if you're listening to a global warming uh, clip, YouTube clip, the suggestions, <coughs> excuse me, on the right side of your screen, the first couple are going to be legitimately related. But because of the idiocy of keywording, it's very possible that you will get to some conspiracy stuff. And once you're into one conspiracy thing accidentally, the curation on the right side has become flat earthish, uh, birtherish. And the next thing you know, you're you don't know what's right from wrong. I've I've seen that actually, <clears throat> just about YouTube videos about campus culture, and if not pedagogy, then about campus politics type thing. You you watch one YouTube video hoping to get some information about right. what kind of dialogues are happening on campus, and pretty soon there's all these rage click options on the right, um, from both ends of the political spectrum. Uh, trying, I guess it must work. It must keep people on YouTube for a long time. Where it you, does. You sort of click your way down the rabbit hole, yeah. and pretty soon you are no longer dealing with objective information. They're, they're curating for you. This is exactly the fascistic, sorry to use the F word again, but the fascistic nature of this thing because you're being told what's related by A, keywording, and the keywords are done by, maybe they're automatically done, I don't know, but they're probably done by low-level staffers at YouTube, uh, and uh, those are, you know, it's like it's like asking a non-librarian to go in a library and do subject headings, you know, like, you don't get that. You're not, you haven't really thought through this. And second, of course, popularity, and that's a self-fulfilling thing, right, on, on some of the wackier videos. Okay, so here comes 
the idea of the MOOC or of the role of the educator in the United States, right, or anywhere, to not be a disseminator, teacher, lecturer, but a curator, someone who says, I think I know the field well enough to be able to organize the resources so that you can then in turn watch, listen, learn, and then ask questions. So the best teaching is curation. And in a way, what the Massive Open Online course gives me a chance to do, or what Pensound does, or Poem Talk, or you know, Deviate for you, is to curate the conversations that you think anyone who's interested in the way Rolf is looking at the world can have, although Rolf is not dictating. He's just saying, well, I'm Rolf, your host, so I've invited the people that whose topics interest me, whose dispositions are relevant to me. And if you follow or subscribe or check out every episode, after a while you will get an education. And it's not like I will be slavish to Rolfism, but rather I will be open to the kinds of concerns that you're interested in. You're doing not, it's not much different from what I'm doing in my more official capacity as the creator of Modpo that you're doing this podcast. Again, it's free. It's optional. Nobody is forced to listen to this conversation to the end. It doesn't matter if there are only five listeners. And it has a point of view. I think that's one thing that I've realized as I've taken up podcasting is that I'm sort of stubbornly pursuing what interests me. Um, maybe at the expense of audience numbers, I don't know. But at least in my first season, um, the Deviate with Rolf Potts, uh, it incorporates deviations but it also incorporates Rolf Potts. You know, if it's not something that interests me, I'm probably not going to do an episode about it. And why not? But you know what would be really cool now that the channels are open, now that it's really easy? I mean, we're in a pretty sophisticated room here recording with some good devices, but you don't have to do that, obviously. What would be really cool, and this is where we get to this crowdsourcing idea, because everybody has access, let's stimulate a thousand deviates. Let's stimulate everybody to curate and host their own way through issues that are of concern to them. Aggregate it, organize it. It's called the World Wide Web, by the way. I mean, we do have it. It's being taken over by knaves and uh, owners, but it's still... You know, I mean, notwithstanding the net neutrality problems, it's still, you can still do it. It's still there. You can, you can do it. And the more people who do it, and the more of us there are who recognize those who are doing it interestingly and like it or plug it or retweet it or share it, the more people will be able to pick good stuff and not be subject to YouTube's uh, evil curation. That's... That's what educators, Rolf, should be doing in the 21st century. They should be less insular within the universities that pretty much have their shit together in terms of curation and providing a public service. If you want to understand the Second Amendment, here's the 30 things that I recommend that you read. They're not so hard. I've curated. I've excerpted them. I provided a little commentary. I don't want to tell you what to think. I want you to find out about the Second Amendment, what's been the discussion about it. I'm sure there's stuff out there on the Second Amendment. I haven't looked. But there's definitely, we definitely have the resources. The question is not whether 
people will have conversations in a culture like this. The question is not whether they will have conversations, Rolf. The question is not whether people will talk about this stuff. The question is whether we will be part of the conversation. And by we, I mean those who are educators. Are we going to be part of it? Because it's really easy to stay inside the ivory tower or you know, the walls of the university and only talk to paying customers, right? Because that's our job, right? Strictly defined. And therefore, absent ourselves from all the conversations that are taking place. And one of the reasons I'm inspired by the young high school students who are taking this on the road uh, is because they're so disappointed. Meaning like the Parkland students. Yeah, the Parkland kids and the allies that they've made at other, at other you know, young people. It's, it's, a, it's a rough equivalent to the moment after the successes and failures of the Berkeley free speech movement as, un, as student, university students spilled out beyond the campus or the edge of campus and began saying, you know, like, we have no, we can't shape the curriculum. We cannot, we cannot break into this uh, Western Civ curriculum. We're going to try you know, we're going to try to create a black studies department. We're going to try to make the Humanities 101 a little more responsive to issues that are of concern to us. But actually, we don't need to do that because we can stand at the edges of and the outside of the university and have a conversation with people about what we think is wrong. Okay, a little less SDS-ish, a little less organized. Young people today are saying, what's... What's happening, where, where, are, where are the uh, intellectual leaders of this country? Well, they're inside think tanks and universities, and we really would love to have a conversation. And it's a pretty interesting, it's an interesting conversation. One, you know, if you're a teacher, you crave saying to those smart, articulate kids, let's rap, let's have a place where we can talk, let's go somewhere where we can really work this out. Well, one thing that stuck with me last time we spoke, or at least last time we spoke about pedagogy is years ago, and I don't know if I'm going to represent this correctly, but basically is that you can give a lecture on a topic 70 times, or you can record yourself giving the best version of the lecture and make it available where students can listen to it or watch it on their own terms. If, they, if their attention wanders, they can pause it and go for a run and come back or have dinner and come back. They can absorb it at their own pace, at their own time, it's the best lecture you ever gave on that topic, and then that's the starting point. Rather than the content, that's the starting point. And so I'm wondering if that might not liberate educators to do more of what you just suggested, like to, to, to curate their own greatest hits as far as, as far as the old school lecture type discussions and use those as starting points for engaging uh, the greater community. Why not? It's a moderate step. It's, it's what, what I meant before by flipping the classroom. You put all that stuff that you used to gobble up classroom minutes with, giving that lecture yet another time, put it elsewhere, allow people to watch it, and then they come into class and you say, well, you saw, you saw my presentation. What do you think? But I'm going further now, five years later. I want that canned lecture to be actually itself interactive. And how does that... Through the, through the MOOC or? Through, well, it doesn't have to be a MOOC, but um, any kind of video recording. Why not record me with, with eight people talking through a text or trying to deal with a problem? I mean, let's face it. Many voices uh, are easy to listen to. 
if you're the recipient or the hearer or the watcher, the viewer. Many voices, six, seven voices. It's a little harder to listen to the same voice unless it's an absolute charismatic voice. A little harder, which is why TED Talks are so short because if, you, if they were 45 minutes, most people would be asleep. You know, so eight voices, eight perspectives, eight subjectivities, eight ages, eight backgrounds on the same topic. Nothing more compelling than that, which is why human beings have been sitting around in circles for so long. It's not simply that we wanted to warm ourselves around a fire at night. There's that. And it's not simply that, the, that there were theological rituals associated with it, you know, hoping that the animals would come out tomorrow so we could eat. Um, it, there's something essential about sharing, probably storytelling and singing at first. It's where poetry comes from. And so that circle is the first classroom, probably. And notice it wasn't a lecture. I mean, it may have been, for all I know, there may have been one wise person who shut everybody else up. But I like to think that there were multi, multiple voices. You talked earlier about how we have these institutions, a political a politician makes a statement, a corporation makes a statement after an accident, a politician makes a statement after a floor vote. You said there isn't a way to talk back or you suggested something along those lines, but we have Twitter. I mean, we have ways to comment on things. Maybe there's way, maybe some people do read those things. Um, they do. Is this perfectible? I mean, is this... No, probably not, but it's worth getting into. I mean, Twitter, I think, is great for this. Um, recently, I had the pleasure of replying to someone. You know, I have 5,500, we say followers on Twitter? Yeah, I think so. 5,500 followers, and I'm very proud of that, but I was interacting with someone who has um, 600,000 followers, which, of course, is not even big compared to some people. But And uh, I went back and forth with this person. And in an argument, no, no, we were discussion. we were supporting each other on something, mm -hmm. um, recommending something together. Uh, now this person's followers, fifty five hundred and fifty thousand of them, the the number of impressions might have been seventy thousand um, of my reply because I was tagged. Now I've got a whole lot of other people following me. And what they have to say is mostly interesting. There are trolls, there are jerks, obviously. But Twitter conversations are actually quite interesting. They're, they're limited in a lot of ways. But consider the worst, the most cesspoolish of these, let's say a newspaper comment stream. Well, the Times has decided to curate, to choose who gets whose comment. I think this is the case. New York Times. Yeah, yeah. So Charles Blow columnist the other day wrote a piece about Stefan, the guy who was shot in his backyard. In Sacramento. And, in Sacramento. And uh, I went the next morning to his comment stream and there were 550 comments or 400 comments or something like that. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go through these things. The last time I did this, I was scared out of my wits by what awful things people said. Well, it was, it was obviously chosen by the Somebody. I don't know who, I think. But it was pretty good. I mean, a lot of people were angry at him. and The curated were, comments. Yeah, and I think lightly curated, I would okay. say. I think what was left out were the, you know, just the name-caller racists or whatever. Uh, I enjoyed reading the comment stream. I'm not going to do it a lot. 
because there's a lot of idiocy there and just people just spouting off. But so you said, is it perfectible? I think was the word. I mean, no, but we do have venues, Rolf. We can talk back. We can. And I think that the Parkland kids on Twitter, they're best on Twitter, I think, they've really shown how savvy they can be at getting people's attention. And it's mostly politely talking back. And they've got a lot of people cheering for them. So I think if you're savvy about it, you can... But it's so helter-skelter and hectic. Let's be a little more organized. Can we learn something from what the university has done in the last 400 years to organize these conversations, to convene a conversation outside the academy? Can we do that? I think, I think sometimes political campaigns say, I'm convening a conversation, and they have these, what do they call them, town hall-style meetings. Okay, but there's something back there, way back there in the idea of the town hall meeting goes back to some new england mode i can't quite put my finger on it that is real democracy as opposed to republic democracy you know people showing up and raising their hands uh that's cool electronic media and the new technology has enabled to do enabled us to do the town hall meeting virtually so people can come from you know all places not just that one little town where they showed up at the town hall meeting. And that's some organized university-inflected or academia-inflected version of the New York Times comment stream is what a MOOC is like. I mean, believe me, I know. I filter through people's comments, and some people can be pretty adamant even about a poem. And, Are there uh, MOOC trolls? Very few in Modpo because we're all over the place. We, we, we create a kind of geniality that, but there are, I, I, goodness gracious, I audited a, uh, a MOOC on the Holocaust. I would never do a MOOC on the Holocaust for reasons that might be obvious. These two well-meaning elderly professors from uh, the University of California at, I think, San Diego or maybe UCLA put up a MOOC based on their course. And then they left it because they didn't, expect to be part of the conversation and the jerks and deniers and revisionists took over. Ooh, it was horrifying, just horrifying. So you have to be there, you have to be part of the conversation, as I said before, but perfectible, no, but it's worth trying, I think. More of us should try it. Do MOOCs require a central personality? Like you're, you're the Modpo guy. Um, in a sense, I'm the deviate guy. Uh, can, could there be an automated MOOC that uses existing materials, or does it really need a human center? Well, it needs a human center, at, the, at least at this point, but the CMOOC is the model, so go check them out. Hope your listeners will hear this. CMOOC. Where would they find them? I don't know. I, I, I mean, they're just you just have to put the word out somewhere or just Google CMOOC. Because I can put it in the show notes. Uh, well, there. I mean, it's, I'll send you some links. Okay. But the the CMOOC is really anarchistic. It can be very anarchistic. But we're going to have a three day CMOOC or a five day CMOOC or a one month CMOOC on the topic of X, and we're not sure what. So everybody, let's crowdsource the materials we're going to read. Let's see where it goes. That's that's more like what you're talking about. Very cool. And there's been a lot written on. In, in the academy, I don't think there's any sort of general reading. There might be a couple of books about MOOCs. 
The X MOOC, which is for better or worse, what I'm involved in is much more of a course. I set out the course. I'm, it's Al's course. You see what I'm saying? So I would like, clearly you can tell from what I'm saying that I would like to downplay the charisma-centered, personality-centered quality to it. But I also don't mind being the poster boy for ModPoly. If, if I'm the guy they recognize, I'm happy to be recognized on the street as, oh, you're the ModPo guy. What I hope they mean when they say you're the ModPo guy is you're the guy who convenes all of us. That's cool. Thank you for doing it. Well, it's interesting that of all the, how are you doing for time? Good. You good? Um, I used to listen to iTunes U. I'm sure it's still out there. Um, are you familiar with iTunes Yes, U? I am. Yeah. And I always went for the brand name stuff. It's like, oh, um, University of Indiana or Duke? You know, I'm a good Midwestern guy, but I would go for Duke, you know? Uh, UPenn or, you know, Oklahoma State, I'll, I'll do Penn. You know, that somehow the idea that there's not only an expert at the center of something, but also like a brand name, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the Ivy. Sure. I think that that's in, that can be in, inseparable for how people are to, are attracted to certain modes of remote learning or online learning. I think that's learning, right. Things like I that. I think that's right. It's one of the problems associated with that project. I mean, Coursera, when they first started, they wanted to affiliate with the world's leading universities obvious, for obvious reasons. Like, So you are... Uh, in uh, Dushanbe, Tajikistan, um, and you're using, uh, you know, you're using a public space to get your internet access, and uh, you have an op opportunity to learn from Harvard about constitutional law, U.S. constitutional law. You're going to go for Harvard, right? So I think they were playing upon that. But the guy in Tajikistan is pretty savvy because he's really really wants to make use of his time. He wants to get global education or whatever. Um, so he's going he's gonna to stick with a course that actually teaches him, and it might not be the Harvard course. So let's think of a hypothetical here. You're, you're a 37-year-old from Denton, Texas, going to travel to Vietnam. You want to learn about the Vietnam War from the Battle of Dien Bien Phu towards the creation of Rambo II. Uh, there's a in, MOOC for that. In, in in a rush of information from like several PBS series, books, podcasts, how does this guy in Denton, Texas go about educating himself about the... You've just asked the key question, right? So I, last I checked, more than a third of searches, any searches, generic searches, were done on YouTube. Really? Yeah, we say Google. Google we say Google as a verb, but let's just say web web searchers, web 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 browsing. I didn't know using this. a web browser to search is only two thirds, and even that is probably not mostly Google. I'm sure it must be lots of other ways of searching, um, or people will Google, meaning use their web browser, their favorite web browser, and come up with a couple of hits that are near the top that are YouTube, and they'll go to YouTube. So we got a problem because <laughs> the guy, what's his name from Denton? Let's Did we give, give him, him a name? Let's, let's call him Alex. Okay. Alex is in trouble right away if he's just going to do a web search because he's going to get some YouTube. Now, if Alex heard about, uh, what's his name, Ken Burns' Vietnam series, there's a pretty good chance that that will come up 
fourth or fifth on the search right now, and he should go see it. He or she he should, if it's available, depending on what kind of subscription he's got with his cable. And it's not clear whether he'll get PBS. I don't think it's just free for free on YouTube yet. So you got that right. Um, if he's really planning to go to Vietnam, did you say that? Right. That's yeah. um, he's I traveling. Have a lot of travelers. He's in my probably audience. pretty savvy right now. If he's if he has bought the ticket to Vietnam, I think he's probably pretty savvy about whom to ask. But what's great about your question, Ralph, is that um, that is the question we've been getting at in, in this entire conversation. What role does a historian or a political scientist or a humanist play at the university in providing – what's his name? I forgot. Alex? Providing Alex, who hasn't paid a penny of tuition. What role do we have to play to enable Alex to get – non-fake news, non-conspiratorial, as neutral, educationally verifiable information and context for his trip to Vietnam. How can we do that? Why can't we be doing that? Now, a lot of, there are a lot of historians who take their public roles seriously, but they're probably often trapped or channeled into university publications or if they do commercial publication, work with a commercial press or a trade press, it's probably still too expensive for Alex or Alex may be not used to buying books anymore, you know, and so we really have to rethink the public mission of being an intellectual so that Alex can find stuff. And there have been some utopian ideas. You know, in the late 90s, there were several utopian ideas about accumulating all of knowledge in a website and stuff like that. You know, we haven't said Wikipedia yet. A lot of people will pick the Wikipedia entry. And I think it's pro there's probably a really good one on Vietnam, or at least the modern history of Vietnam, or at least a good one, if not a really good one, with lots of links. And let's hope Alex has the patience for that, because that's not a bad way to start. Admit it, we all kind of start there anyway, right? Yeah, I, I, I donate out of guilt to Wiki, Wikimedia Foundation. Do you Foundation, really? Good for you. Um, because yeah. I use it so much. Yeah. And actually, my father, who's uh, 78, uh, he, he has an app on his iPad, and, and he just, he, that's his default. He, he yeah. goes there oftentimes to answer questions of himself. It occurred to me while we were talking that one- Wikipedia is probably the short answer to the question you asked five minutes ago. Right, right. That's true. So maybe Wikipedia is in, in this age of self-education, that that's one way to, that's one- And it is sure. crowdsourced. So it really, right? I mean, with all of its flaws, and there are many, it's probably pretty close to the ideal that we've been talking about. I, I think- way. It's not sexy though, and it's not, there's not video in there and- which is and there's and maybe maybe linked there to is podcasts, some now, but, but yeah. um, I think one reason for the popularity of podcasts is people can multitask when while they're doing that. Um, of course, travel itself is a great uh, source of self self education and something I come back to a lot because one thing that occurred to me is that among all these experts, is there going to be someone who says, "Well, here's some translated Vietnamese perspectives on the war." You know that we, there's we always have a very heavily American perspective on that. You know, what did what was written about the Vietnam War in Poland or Angola during that era? And of course, Alex, poor Alex in Denton, Texas, only has so much time to incorporate this stuff. Yeah. Um, That's mainly going to be his problem. Right. And one of the, th one, the platform providers have been obsessed with um, making their materials available on mobile devices. 
I'm a little unhappy with that focus, but it's probably because I'm not paying enough attention to the way people interact with online materials outside the United States. So in in Asia and Africa, you know, mobile devices are the main way of of doing this. So, but the focus on so that so that Alex, who's likely to say, well, you know, my my trip to Vietnam is coming in two weeks, and I don't have a day off before then, so I'm going to use my commute, you know, to listen to this podcast. Again, Wikipedia is not going to help unless he's got an avatar who will play, who will read the audio. I have one of those. They're great, but Alex, let's assume, doesn't have that, so it's really got to be audio. can't be video. He's going to crash the car because he's in Denton. There's not a lot of mass transit, so he's probably driving to work. So let's face it. You got to have a podcast, a good podcast or some the audio only of the Ken Burns series or something. This is providers really need universities. This is what iTunes U, I suppose, was back in the day when it seemed like a cool thing. What the idea was, you know, you would instead of listening to crapola or, uh, you know, news at the nines, listen, you know, educate yourself, essentially radio for the 21st century. I might take things full circle back to this tantalizing idea you brought up early on, the idea of education, pedagogy, the word that I disparaged early on and you defended. You didn't disparage it. <laughs> um, you were just nervous on behalf of your listeners. Right. See, if, if I put pedagogy in the headline, it, it might um, not compete with, you know, like shrooms or dominatrix or other headlines that have... It or will, will not compete with dominatrix. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, but I want to hear a little bit more about the idea of pedagogy in the polis, in the democracy, among people who may not be inside the academy. How does pedagogy self-education work and how and why is it important to American democracy? Self-education? Well, I'm... I'm sort of speaking with the idea that most of my listeners aren't in a university. Um, so actually, but I won't limit it. You can you can talk about inside institutions and outside institutions. But the idea, and it sounds like you're making an argument for the fact that educators inside institutions need to sort of make that boundary more porous. Sure. Pe- pedagogy is a co- consciousness that the thing that you are saying or doing has a meta effect. Um Pedagogy is a consciousness that you're doing something or saying something, but you're also making learning possible so that the lesson can be transferred to other situations. That's pedagogy. So it's pedagogy when a little league coach says to the kid that just, you know, hit the ball and was caught by the third baseman and the kid is out. And the coach says, you really connected with that. Let's talk about how you connected with that. Because next time you connect, it might go through. Uh, and uh, when, the, when the other parents are yelling at the kid for making the out in the ninth inning, the coach is saying both to them and to the kid, um, this is how we learn. This is, you know, stop. Let's think about the future. It's pedagogy when John McCain says to someone in his audience, even though it didn't serve him politically, no, Obama is not an Arab, right? He is, and he is, you know, he he was, I can't, he said something unfortunate, like he's a good 
good father or something like that, good Christian or something. It wasn't the most perfect answer, but it was, it was, he was, that was pedagogy. He was teaching. He was teaching, trying to teach. Um, and uh, it's pedagogy when the mayor of a town in a contentious situation, let's say Yonkers at the time of desegregation, tries to have a conversation about race and about housing and rather than just about this particular piece of legislation that is about to be approved, meaning let's discuss the larger principle here. That's what teachers do, I think. So the, you have the little league coach, you have the wizened senator, and you have the mayor of a small dysfunctional town in those three examples. They're all teachers. If we can just think about those situations as learning situations, and I'll add one more component. Um, in every case, the learner has to learn at his or her or their own speed. I mean, learning styles are always individualized. So pedagogy is also thinking that there is no single kind of teaching that's appropriate in every situation, but rather there are multiple kinds of teachings. And uh, I, 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 everything I've described has nothing I've described has anything to do with school particularly. I mean, parents, when they're at their best, are pedagogues because they're trying to get kind of future outcomes in the particular lesson that's being taught now. So I've, that's, that's an extremely wide version of this. But I think if teachers would take that, those examples as cues for what happens in their classrooms, then the classroom will be more like the local community or the family or the political argument. Well, my father, who was a science teacher, would say sometimes that the fact that he was a mediocre student at best when he was in high school made him a better high school teacher because he could understand what it was like to be a mediocre student who just hadn't been connected with yet, you know, who, who hadn't right. been presented certain ideas in, in certain ways. Um, and it almost feels like this goes back to your model of we just can't sit at the feet of the great lecturers and listen because we do have different learning styles. We do have different rates of absorption. We might, I remember reading Whitman in uh, leaves of grass in college, but it didn't make sense until I was driving across Montana a few years later. Uh, and so it seems... Uh, All lessons are delayed, I think. Very few of us actually get, receive the lesson right there when it's delivered to us. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it has to be put in practice or it has to be put in context at the very, at the very least, you know, that there's, there's certain classroom situations or focused looking at the YouTube video attempted learning situations, but until it's contextualized, and going back to the idea of we read too much self-help without helping ourselves with any of that information, yeah. is that, that the information has to be contextualized and it has to be sort of stumbled against and failed on a little bit before right. it actually becomes education. Right, right. Let me give you one more example, and it's completely trivial, but I mean it. It's sincere. The other night I was hosting a dinner for about 14 people. And there were a couple of really eminent people at the table. And at about two-thirds of the way through the meal, everybody, they were all, people were having, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations. So it was a little chaotic. And so I had the temerity to 
take the fork and clink the glass and say, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think it would be really cool if we went around the table and every person at the table, optionally, of course, describe what project, what are you working on right now? Now, there were some very young people at the table, and part of me was wondering, oh, have I done them a disservice because they're not really working on anything, you know, in the sense that the eminent writer who's in the middle of the table is. And it was great. So I was, that was pedagogical, right, that little move. I hardly did anything. It's all I said, by the way. I even skipped my turn when it was time to talk about projects. And what people had to say was remarkable. Because if you phrase it, what are you working on? It was so great. It was like a seminar, except that each person took maybe five or six minutes to talk, you know, five or six minutes is a long time to talk in some detail about the thing that they were working on. And then you have the elder eminence who's listening to this 19-year-old and says, that's really interesting. Can we talk more about that afterward or whatever? That's like having a, holding, a, holding a class over dinner. We can do that. That's and it was a dorky pedagogical move. Everybody saw it. And they all said, oh, Al, you're such a teacher. But it was, people love that because I didn't lecture. It was... They, they, they brought all of them, and nobody prepared. There were no yellowed lecture notes. And they were, when you're working on your current project, whatever it is, you are really up on it. So there were some pretty great mini lectures in that. It was like you outed everybody for their little area of expertise that otherwise they might have sat there and talked about whatever generic small talk topic was at hand. But instead, suddenly it's like, oh, my God, the person sitting to the right of me is 35 years older than me, but they've done some really interesting research on something that I actually think about a lot or that this kid sitting next to me is 19. But wow, you know, his 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 way of seeing the world and his expertise on on very specific technologies is so much better than mine, even though my um, broader knowledge is is much uh, more impressive than his. So that's that's interesting that you that you sort of forced a moment on on the dinner party. Forced is right. And it has some utilitarian consequences that are worth adding because the next thing you know, the eminence and the 19-year-old are chatting and the eminence is saying, you know, I know somebody, I'm going to connect you with somebody who can help you with that project. Or somebody else, a wealthy person says to a student, you know, I know somebody who might fund that. That doesn't happen in traditional classrooms, but it happens when pedagogy mixes generations and, you know, people from all, all angles. It's the great thing about a dinner party, if you invite wisely. Intergenerational diversity, yeah, and, and ideological diversity, too, I think, are two items that you brought up which uh, feel like good conversations that could happen more um, in certain situations. In the interest of time, we should probably wind down, but I just wonder if we've covered a lot of ground too, and maybe we've, we've used acronyms like MOOC more than most my listeners are used to listening to. Can we end on something, maybe some advice or insight or an explanation just about how listeners who are trying to process all of this can approach their own curation of education in a way that is enlarging and enlightening and productive. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the way to start, first of all, just be conscious of who's curating for you. That's that's the main thing, I would think. 
Don't be passive. Don't oh don't God. let YouTube be you your, your curator. You can't be passive. Yeah. Oh, you will be inundated if you're passive. I mean, it's it's fun to unintentionally deviate or digress. It's fun, but it can lead you down some serious rabbit holes you'll never get out of, right? It's addictive, I think. No, but I'd like to take a step back and suggest this. That and it, maybe it, it it deals with the issue of uh, of the relationship between uh, ideological and intellectual diversity on one hand, and uh, uh, the possibility of multivocal discussion on the other, and that's this: uh, when investigating a topic, or teaching a topic, or learning about a topic, um, tr- prepare yourself to talk back to what you're watching or reading. A classic example, um, you want to study early 20th century literature or late 19th century literature, or you want to study the literature of colonialism, or you want to study the way Western writers or European writers dealt with Africa, and someone suggests that you read Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad, and so you read it. It's a classic, and it's really consternating that book. I mean, because we just—it's really hard to know how awful Conrad means himself to be. Uh, it's very hard to know what Marlowe makes of Kurtz, and it's very hard to know what Kurtz makes of Kurtz. So you really—it could be the most racist book you've ever read. It could also be this great anti-racist Jeremiah. Don't know. So. Teach yourself the conflicts. Find a counterargument or a countertext. The countertext I would recommend for that book is Things Fall Apart. That's Achebe, right? Chinua Achebe. If you read Heart of Darkness next to Things Fall Apart, you will have a conversation about Africa or a conversation about points of view um, of colonialism or acquisition or whatever, expropriation, enslavement, commercialization, the first world's effect on the so-called third world, all that stuff. But you have to have both those texts. Whatever the model is for transferring that into everyday conversation or the way you look around the internet, or the way you approach a conundrum, a problem. If you can teach the conflicts or teach yourself the conflicts, you're gonna be better off. And we have the resources available to us to teach ourselves the conflicts, even if the other side of the conflict, in the case I just, uh, the example I just gave of um, of uh, Conrad and the Chebe, both of them are wide open texts, and it's there's no clear sides being taken there, not so clear as they might be. But on let's say go, going back to Second Amen- Amendment issues, I mean clearly there are people on various sides of the argument, and the best thing to do is to get reliable, and I stress that reliable counterarguments to try to understand how you feel before you blindly assume the side that the social media algorithm has given to you. 
This is, a, this is an overfancy way of saying what we just said, which is don't let the algorithm determine the sphere you're in. And uh, again, it's a failure of educators that we're not leading in a specific sense. I mean, where is the nonprofit? Maybe there are institutes out there. Maybe ProPublica is, is what I really mean or Wikipedia or something. We should be out there, educators and intellectuals should be out there figuring out how people can teach themselves the conflicts before they decide to take sides. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to a number of online learning resources, including Al Phil Reese's ModPo MOOC, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was recorded at Kelly Ryder's house at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. A shout out to Zach Cardner of Wexler Studio. He was the sound engineer for this conversation. As usual, Justin Glow is my producer and editor, Cedar Van Tassel does the music, and Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.